Welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I'm your host, John Barker. Got a special guest today that I met, I forget, several years ago, pre-COVID, pre-everything, back in my Culpepper days when I was working on the Broadband Steering Committee, trying to assist them. It's Dr. Christopher Ali. He's Associate Professor in the Department of Media Studies. I need my, hold on a second. I'm going to need my glasses because I realize I've degraded since uh, last year. So Dr. Christopher Lee is an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. He holds a PhD in Communication Studies from the University of Pennsylvania. His research interests include communication policy and regulation, rural broadband, critical political economy, critical geography, media localism, and local news. Christopher's work has been published in the New York Times, The Hill, and Realtor Magazine, and is a frequent commentator on the subjects of broadband, media policy, and local news with interviews in the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, NPR, CNET, CBC, Bloomberg, and a whole bunch of other major national and international news outlets. Christopher's current research focuses on broadband policy and the deployment in the United States, specifically in rural areas. His recently released book, Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity, examines the complicated terrain of rural broadband policy in the United States. Farm Fresh unpacks the politics of broadband policy, asking why millions of rural Americans lack broadband access and why the federal government and large providers are not doing more to connect the unconnected. And I felt like that was a mouthful as I was saying that, but that is extremely impressive. Christopher, thanks for taking the time to be here. Thanks for having me. This is great. No, this is awesome. And, and because I have had that experience working in a local community and trying to get some inroads, uh, and it's been some time since we've got connected. And of course, there's some stuff in the infrastructure bill that's been released. Wanted to kind of lay the groundwork of where things are. Having watched a recent presentation you did at UVA, looks like some of the stuff still a little stuck, but maybe there's a little light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, there is a lot going on and a lot of buzz, obviously, around broadband. The highlight here is the infrastructure package and the infrastructure Mm -hmm. package allocated $65 billion for broadband, 42 billion of which will go to deployment and then 14 billion of which will go to um, affordability called the, uh, the affordable connectivity program. And then another 3 billion will go towards digital equity and inclusion projects. So this is amazing. This is the largest public investment in telecommunications in the country's history. And and so it's going to take a while to get down the pipes, right? So the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, the NTIA, has jurisdiction over all of this money. So right now it's crafting the rules around how states will be able to access the money. Because what's going to happen is that NTIA holds the piggy bank, then it gives money to states, and then it will be up to the states to decide who gets that money for broadband deployment. So all eyes will, of course, be on Virginia. And one of the really interesting things, I should say, Virginia eyes will be on Virginia. But And one of the really <laughs> interesting things that the infrastructure bill requires is it requires every state to work with localities and uh, regional entities to create a statewide broadband plan. And, and this is going to be really important. Here in Virginia, we've had one. It's the Commonwealth Connect, but a lot of states don't have them. And it's going to force even us to, to revamp and reimagine our broadband priorities for the next five years. So I think this is going to be really important. And every state's going to craft these plans differently. For those who who are interested in the role of counties, for instance, in broadband, which is something that I'm really interested in, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see counties play a tremendous role in the allocation of this money and even getting some of this money to do some really great broadband projects. So really exciting stuff to be following right now in the broadband policy world. 
No, that's that's good to hear. And I wanted to figure out a flow through the conversation so it could make sense. But I'll integrate my experience having worked with representatives of the county, some contractors that have come in back in years past, as well as making sure everybody comes into this conversation going, hey, I, I live in this rural community. We don't have why not. And I think probably the best starting point is let's set up what you did with the study for the book and on your road trip, trying to trying to get a, your hands wrapped around that and really defining what, when people say broadband, what do they mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the second question first, just to lay the land a little bit. What yep. is broadband? Okay. In, in, in lay speak and everyday broadband is simple, high speed internet, internet access that will allow you to do, for instance, what we're doing here, a two-way video conversation. That's broadband. If we start to get technical, the Federal Communications Commission defines broadband as an always-on internet connection of 25 megabits per second download, 3 megabits per second upload. Outdated. And it's often depicted, uh, for those of you uh, watching it, as 25 slash 3. You'll see this number a lot. And it is absolutely an outdated speed. So at 25.3, if this is the service you're legitimately getting, not this, not, not what you're paying for, but if you're actually getting 25.3, someone living on their own probably won't have a problem streaming Netflix or playing some games or doing this two-way video conversation. The problem becomes what happens when you don't live alone? What happens when you've got your family, your, your partner, you've got kids, you're living in an apartment building, you're living in a sorority, you're living in, right? When you've got multiple users on the network, 25.3 will collapse pretty quickly. And this is what we saw, particularly during the pandemic. Everyone was thinking, oh, we pay for good broadband, so we won't have a problem working or studying <laughs> from home. And then in our case, my husband and I get on a, a Zoom call, a two different Zoom calls in the house, and we're buffering, even though we're paying right. an arm and a leg. Our broadband was not good enough for what the pandemic forced us to do. So that's broadband, right, in, in, in the way in which we're having this debate around speed. And I, for one, um, I'm a big fan of what's called symmetric speeds, so that yep. upload and download should match. Because as it was described to me, and I love this idea that download speeds are, is about consumption, right? It's about binging Netflix. It's about pulling content to you. Upload is about production. Upload is about conversations like we're having right now. Upload is about business. Upload is about credit card swipes and doctor's records and massive amounts of data being uploaded. This is what influencers, I wish influencers got more into broadband because they're uploading data all the time. So we need to think about high capacity upload networks. And the big push right now is for 100, 100, 100 megabits per second download, 100 megabits per second upload. And that's a big political fight right now at Congress. And that's something I had not heard that specific number because I know over years, so I pay for uh, business Comcast yep. internet here. So it's it's four times as much as your normal home connection, yep. but I get a couple of things that are supposed to be guaranteed. But the upload service, as you just mentioned, is absolutely atrocious. Yeah. And they keep saying they're going to upload it. It's uh, I'm at 200, and, 200 down, 30 up. Wow. And it's and and but thirty for Comcast. If you're on a coaxial non-fiber connected line, seems to be the best that they've done. And it's been stuck there, yeah, for I forget how many years, a decade. But and, anyway, and I part of that is <laughs> no, but you raise a really good point here, John, which is that in the infrastructure package, um, the build out, the lowest amount that I, that if you got money, if you're an ISP like Comcast, let's say, and you got money from the infrastructure package. You're expected to build out networks that can meet 120, not 100, 100. Why that particular number, 120? My gut says because that's what coaxial cable. So we're making sure that these kind of outdated technologies remain in this in, in, in this eligibility for 
billions and billions of dollars. And I think this is a good segue into the research I've done for my book. So I'm a policy scholar. And so I started off this book reading a ton of policy, reading a ton of broadband policy around obviously what is broadband and some of the debates and why is it that we've been funding broadband, the federal government has been funding broadband for the past decade and a half. And yet, or yes, it's about yeah, 2000, 2009. Why hasn't the rural urban digital divide shrank? Why haven't we gotten further in this? And what I found in this kind of this policy analysis is that it's because we favored the largest providers, always favoring the largest providers who are deploying <laughs> rather outdated technologies, right? Who are the ones pushing for that 25-3 definition? Because it means that digital subscriber line still counts. It means that uh, satellite still counts. And obviously it means that cable still counts. So the lobbying efforts there were huge. But one thing so, I found in the book about halfway through my research is that maybe my readers will not find broadband policy as absolutely captivating as I do. And maybe <laughs> maybe I need to spice it up a little bit. Basically, maybe I need to humanize it. And this is something I realized that wasn't also happening on Capitol Hill. No one was talking about people, right? We were talking about dollars and we were talking about technologies and fiber versus fixed wireless. And we we're talking about numbers like 25, 3 or 100. But no one was talking to people. And so in, in the summer of 2018, my hound dog Tuna and I drove of 3,600 miles across the Midwest, talking to folks about broadband and getting stories. And what it allowed me to do was all of this technical and technological jargon that is filled broadband policy, right? Because broadband policy isn't written for you and I. It's not written for boards of supervisors. It's written for lawyers, AT&T, or Verizon, <laughs> or whoever. So it, it allowed me to humanize and tell the stories of how these policy decisions are actually lived on the ground throughout throughout the Midwest and had to, so there's a whole chapter in my book chapter four is all around this one community Rock County in Minnesota and how they deployed a lot of local solutions to broadband and I'm a and a spoiler alert for the book I'm a big fan of local broadband providers cooperative providers uh, local investor owned providers utility providers uh, because these are the ones these are the companies these are the entities that are trusted. They're accountable, and they're the ones who are actually deploying those high-speed and affordable broadband networks in rural communities. With that, and now you're starting to get into, and I appreciate the backstory, because that, that helps set you up as obviously the expert in, in the field, and then me coming into it from a very narrow scope when I worked within Culpeper County. How much of it, when you start talking about the local municipalities getting in there, was it the lobbying is trying to shut that stuff down? Oh, because yeah. I used to read, yeah, I used yeah. to read news stories, and again, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna get some facts wrong, but I think the sentiment will be correct just because it has been a little bit of time. That North Carolina would come in there, they would build up these public infrastructures for broadband, high speeds, affordable for people, and I do want you to touch on that being an, also an issue with the affordability of what you saw, not just lack of infrastructure. But I want to say in Virginia, it was like they got it somehow in through Virginia. No, if you start talking about that, you're shut down. Is that yeah. a little bit of what you saw as well? Yeah. So right now, 18 states either prohibit or inhibit municipalities from funding, owning, and operating broadband networks. And why is this important? It's important because the, for a lot of these communities, the private market has failed in broadband. If there was an active private market, we wouldn't need to think about a public, we wouldn't need to think about public investment. First of all, we wouldn't need to think about a public network, but they're either the incumbent is not doing their job. Or there's just no incumbent because the, the maybe the community is too small, maybe it's too low income, maybe it's too spread out, and it's too expensive. So the, these private companies are not seeing the return on investment. And so about, about 20 years ago, you started to see these towns, municipalities, and counties say, hey, you know what? 
Comcast isn't coming to us anytime soon. We're going to figure out a way to network by ourselves. And immediately from there on in, you saw massive lobbying by telecommunications companies, by cable companies, to state legislatures saying, this is a bad idea. This is a quote unquote distortion of the free market that municipalities don't know what they're doing or counties don't know what they're doing. It's going to waste money. Um, It's going to put taxpayers on the hook. And unfortunately, this was bought by a lot of state legislatures. In Virginia, Virginia is one of those states that doesn't prohibit it, but inhibits. It makes it very difficult for, for a public entity like a municipality or a county to provide broadband. So one of the things, for instance, it does, it says you have to match the prices of the incumbent. Which is ridiculous because how are you supposed to get subscribers? One thing we know with municipal networks is that it does drive competition, it lowers prices, and it raises speeds because oftentimes municipalities will be deploying, whereas the incumbent maybe was relying on DSL or coaxial cable, which is cable networks if you have Xfinity. But no one wants competition. No one, the incumbents don't want competition. And one of the big... goes against free market. Absolutely. Competition should be the basis of this, except something somewhere around only 30%, and this fact could be a little bit off, but there's a sm- only a small portion of the American population that actually have a choice in broadband yeah. provider. In rural America, it's about 19%. Only 19% of rural Americans have a choice in broadband providers. Legitimate choice. So yeah, we might have a couple of companies at the national level doing this stuff, but at the local level, there's usually only one or two. And dollars to donuts, if it's a local company, they're doing better than if it's a national company. Oh, no question. And I think what's interesting that a lot of people don't realize is how they go about some of those measurements to see if an area is served or not based on census blocks. Yeah. And and I've seen the map. I saw, and on top of it being used by census blocks where, and you can correct me if I get this off, but I want to say it's if... Comcast is in a census block and they have one house out of the 200 that are there. Hey, we're covered. We're good. Check mark. Check mark on us. But they were also on the map that I saw. It was literally a Gestapo style setup where if Comcast was the one on that map serving it, Verizon could not and would not go in there to go get the other ones served, even if they wanted to. So there's often handshake agreements that go on. So Comcast gets one town, Verizon gets another, Charter gets another, right? Um, or sometimes you just get an entire state, right? Comcast is from Philadelphia. So you can't, it's very difficult to buy a Verizon product in Philadelphia. You would think that this would violate antitrust regulations, but somehow it hasn't. Uh, and it's about a larger conversation about how we define antitrust in this country. But yeah, you're absolutely right. because it was a handshake agreement and not written right. down. So you're, you're right. If there is an incumbent, another big carrier probably will not move in to try and drive up competition. The other thing you mentioned about mapping. So yeah, it is ridiculous. One building in a census block is served. The entire census block, 100% of that census block is considered served. Two other problems with this. One, that building doesn't have to be served. It just has the potential of being served within 10 business. It would mean that maybe you're not even, maybe a Comcast or CenturyLink isn't even in the century or in the census block. But so long as they can claim that a building can be served within 10 business days, they can say that census block is 100% served. The other thing that when we talk about service, we're not talking about actual speed. We're talking about advertised speed. And that's a big difference. And I bet you dollars to donuts that a lot of people on this call are not happy because they're not getting the speeds they're paying for. Because ISPs, internet service providers, do not have to publicize the actual speed you will get. Only the hypothetical maximum of the network. So yeah, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're on a digital subscriber line and you're two two houses away from the DSLAM, which is the neighborhood node, then yeah, you might be able to get what you're paying for. But 
if it's the middle of the day and a lot of people are using the network, you're going to be uh, SOL, so to speak. So the, the kind of advertised speeds and the census blocks has really been detrimental. And it's meant that the Federal Communications Commission has drastically overestimated the number of connected households in this country, upwards of about 50 percent. And the other problem is if you're in a census block that is considered 100% served, right, that one building means you're 100% served, you are ineligible for federal. So you're if you're miscounted on the broadband map, now in the FCC's credit, they are redoing it, but it's going to take another year. We'll see a new broadband map in about a, in summer 2023. You're going to be ineligible for money. So these maps are absolutely crucial to the success of the infrastructure plan. And we just have to hope that history does not repeat itself in this regard. So the one thing that I found interesting, you talking about maps, when I first started out working on the broadband committee, and I actually found they've taken this off of the website because this was we did this in 2015, 2016. And if you happen to be watching this uh, or listening to this, I've got our the Culpepper's broadband study report, which is public information. And if you go to page three, you will actually see my name in the nice. bottom. But we also found it interesting that when you were trying in the early stages that even the broadband that's or the fiber that's buried in the area in a lot of cases was considered private IP and they didn't have to publicly disclose it. So right. when you were going out there trying to map going, hey, guess what? This section of the county on the west side across these streets, but you couldn't gauge the level of effort and the level of money necessary because you didn't know accurately what was already in the ground. And is that across the country from what you saw, or is that just a Virginia thing? No, it is across the country. ISPs are under no obligation to report their fiber optic lines. And this is why, so we don't have a good nationwide map of fiber deployment, because there's also a tremendous amount of what's called dark fiber, fiber that may have been laid in the ground but was abandoned. We've been laying fiber since the 1980s, right? There's a ton of fiber in the ground. Um the problem is we don't know where, like you said, we don't know where a lot of it is. And so oftentimes people will be surprised that there's a fiber optic line running down the street, but not to the house. And that obviously is causing a lot of frustration. But no, ISPs are under no obligation to report their deployment in terms of technology, in terms of the actual wires um, in the ground or strung up on those telephone poles. So there's no public pressure or with some of the infrastructure bill that's coming new, is that going to mean that these guys may be willing to play and maybe some of the dark fiber that's not turned on be lit up finally for expansion with this, that they may have an economic interest in turning some of this on if they think they're going to get free hands out. Yeah, we're, we're not really sure. One of the interesting things that is in the infrastructure package and the FCC is just rolling out now is a, uh, like a nutrition, they call it a nutritional guide for broadband so that now when you subscribe to broadband, you will actually get a rundown of actual speeds in different times and you'll actually mm -hmm. get a cost breakdown for the first time. Because that's the other thing, ISPs were not required to uh, declare price and <laughs> Americans pay the most out of any developed nation in the world for broadband. Yep. So they're calling it an informational guide like you would look at the box of a, the back of a box of cereal and you'd see the, the nutritional values and here you'll have how the network is actually performing. So that's going to be huge. We have to make sure that with that, there is consumer education around what these numbers actually to make sure that, that consumers are, are empowered to make the right choices for their household, if, of course, they have a choice. But yeah, and then with regards to, to dark fiber, I am hoping that one of the things that the infrastructure bill does do is it allows new stakeholders to come out of the woodwork. And I think that's a result of the pandemic. Certainly, we saw a number of organizations and industries who hadn't really gotten involved in the broadband fight realized, no, holy smokes, we all need broadband. We need broadband for work. Our employees need broadband, so have you. And, and they might be owning 
fiber optics that they don't even realize. I'm seeing a lot of, there's a lot of coalition building around this. And so hopefully we will be seeing some of the mobilization and mapping of some of this dark fiber or underused fiber that's that's been just sitting here. I know in Virginia, there's a tremendous amount because we've got so many server farms here as well. There's a tremendous amount of unlit fiber running through the high, running up and down highways. We knew there was a bunch around in Virginia in Culpeper's located around Route 29. Which yes, I was just going to say, up, up and down we 29. Knew yeah. Up and down, because you've got that, they call it the outside that for anybody not familiar, outside the blast zone of DC. So they want to be able to be able to move right. operations. It's one of the reasons why Library of Congress has one of their facilities yeah. in Culpeper for protection. But it was, we, when we first started, we we're like, we know it's here, but we don't exactly know where it's here. And we also don't know exactly what the intention of it right. is here. <laughs> and I might say you probably also didn't know who owns it, which is the other thing. Yeah, There's no, so much yeah. fiber that that we don't know who's in control of this. So then <laughs> even when you want to tap into it, you're not exactly, especially if the fiber has been abandoned, you have no idea who actually owns those lines. So the other thing, I'm going to stick to the budgeting piece because this was another thing I ran into as we further got further along in the process and talking with members of the Board of Supervisors and even beyond when the kind of our group disbanded, but I was keeping tabs mm -hmm. for a period of time until I realized it was DOA, to okay. be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. My first initial meetings were the local board, at least in our area, was a very aging board. And I don't want to sit there. And so technical competency was probably not at the forefront, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Mm -hmm. On top of that, they looked at it as a, a free enterprise solution. Magic fairies are going to come and, and sprinkle internets on us. It was right, the right. thing. I don't remember ex my exact conversation. One of them was actually in my yard. And I just remember being able to flip whatever he said to me back on him in five seconds. And it made him pause. It did not make any change, mm -hmm. but it made mm -hmm. him pause. Mm -hmm. And I, I just remembered the effect that had. But some of the grants that had been out there previously, again, not knowing the details of the new infrastructure bill, required a, a skin in the game component from yeah. the counties. Yeah. The Culpepper at the time was not willing to put some skin in the game. So how much is how much does that affect when you've got those communities that think free enterprise is going to come save the day? They can't do a, a public option because they can't drum up the support. Right. And yet you're still stuck in this lack of broadband because of lack of infrastructure. That's a great, that's a great question. And what I see is I like how you said, like the sprinkle the internets around it. And what my concern kind of piggybacking off of that is when I talk to counties and they say 5G is just around the corner or we hear Starlink oh, is going to come. Yeah. And so we're going to pause, or we don't need to think about this, or we don't need to, we're going to pause our broadband deployment plans. And this is things that keep me up at night because this is the hype, right? The new and the next and the largest and the loudest. But to be 5G, at least the 5G that would replace a home internet connection is not going to come to rural America anytime soon, if at all, just because of the infrastructure required to deploy that type yeah. of network. Starlink is also picking and choosing really house by house who they're going to serve. In 2018, yeah, Elon Musk says, I'm going to connect this world. Then a few years later, he's saying, I'm going to connect rural America. And now he's saying, I'm going to connect just a couple of houses here. And the buy-in, of course, is also very expensive for Starlink. And the network uh, connection is uncertain. It's certainly been dialed down. Originally, it was promised it would compete with fiber optics and 5G. Yeah. And now it's looking more like it will compete with cable. So it's, not bad if you've been living off satellite internet. He's getting pushed before. off. I got but two clients getting, now that need it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Horribly. But they it just keeps... It gets... 
So there next are options quarter, next on quarter, the ground. Next quarter. <laughs> right. There are options on the ground right now. And this is, I think, where we need to be, you know, encouraging our boards of supervisors to look at. And then you bring up the point that, yes, a lot of these programs, uh, especially from USDA, require collateral or a matching component, sometimes 25%. But this is where I, we're actually seeing some really great use of CARES Act money. Every state's okay. got buckets of money from CARES Act, and then counties got a lot of money. And so for a lot of these grants, Nelson County, for instance, was able to use the CARES Act money it got as that down payment to receive other loans and grants. So that's why we saw here in Central Virginia, we're seeing the massive deployment of Firefly broadband with the Central Virginia Electric mm-hmm. Cooperative. It's because Nelson County was really able to parlay its COVID money into kind of champion this one provider, which I think is which I think is really great. And there's a lot of counties who have used CARES Act money in this way to use it as the matching component. It's awful that it took a pandemic with colossal loss of life for yeah. us to realize that this is not a, a luxury and that it's not just about getting some broadband or some internet out to people, but it's about those high-speed affordable networks. Um, and, and hopefully that energy and, and that commitment to connectivity will extend to this next round of federal funding. No, and it's crazy you mentioned that because after having went through this pretty pretty close with some people in, in Culpeper, my wife is a, the assistant principal in Stafford. And when the pandemic started, I remember her, they sent everybody home. And then her first thing was, I don't know how we're going to function. Yeah. And then I heard through the grapevine about the the technology director of the the county kind of going, I've got to figure out how to solve the broadband internet issue for everyone. And it's I I did not know him. I still don't know him. I I hope to meet him soon. And I shot him a note back then. I said, man, I I live with this. Do not try to do this on your own. You're going to break yourself in half and you need to go get every political person involved to try to figure out some resources. So then you get the mobile hotspot thing that's going around there. But to me, that's a stopgap solution it where is, they have to spend yeah. on a dime yeah. versus a long-term thing. And I just don't see anything else have, having changed, at least right. dramatically. Aside from a national shortage of hotspots now. So you're absolutely right. These are definitely stopgaps so that particularly school children could get something, right? Now the question is, what types of technologies are we going to be looking to deploy? When the president first announced the infrastructure package, he used this term future-proof. And he said, we wanted future-proof networks. and And typically... The word future-proof is, is, is a metaphor for uh, fiber. Sure, yep. And I have to admit that when I wrote my book, I was like, everybody needs fiber fiber. I've softened a little bit on that. And I'm not, I would certainly, I'm not endorsing DSL or coaxial cable, but I am seeing particularly for agricultural communities, the value of fixed wireless. So long as, and what fixed wireless is, sorry, I should back up, is that when you receive uh, your home internet wirelessly from a tower that might service your neighborhood or even your entire town, so long as that tower is connected to a fiber optic network on the back, consumers are going to get some pretty good speeds. It's going to be comparable to cable, which is going to, which could be a game changer for a lot of these agricultural communities, which are incredibly spread out where fiber to the home is going to get incredibly expensive. And so what I'm seeing a lot of communities do is, let's say you'll they'll do fiber to the curb, maybe fiber to the business, and then set up a ring of fixed wireless for residential. And that's a good stopgap as you look to deploy further fiber into the community. And so I'm, I, I guess I'm softening in my old age about <laughs> that. The fact that we also need to make sure that communities are making the best choices for themselves because fiber is expensive between $27,000 and $100,000 a mile. If you're a super spread out county, you know, 
that it's going to run you tens of millions of dollars. Whereas a fixed wireless network, so long as um, you have a good line of sight and there are no pine trees yep. in the way, you it will be a good stopgap. And I, I and I'm hoping that and I think this I'll back up and say this is part of you know the job that you, you know, folks like you and I can play, which is to make sure that communities have the right information to make the right choices for them, rather than. AT&T or Verizon or Comcast driving up with a briefing book to a board of supervisors saying, here, we'll do it for you. Because that's the stuff that, that keeps me up at night. I want to I want to tell you one thing, and I'm not supposed to know this, but this is something I saw as things had dropped down, is the difference in public and private positions from mm-hmm. some of the big mm-hmm. telecoms. Where you'll read a news story, hey, guess what? One of these guys, we're going to partner up and we're going to make this happen. We're behind you. We know you need this to happen. And... Then the next day you get a cease and desist letter yeah. from pretty much the same people. Is that pretty prevalent for them? I don't, and I don't understand I, the, particularly if you're getting grant money or federal funding, so it's not completely on the right. telecom itself right, right. to go, all right, you're going to scale of economies. You're going to make some money off this long one. You don't, you're not footing the bill. Why do that? And then. I don't think people realize that either. And I didn't until right, I right. Well, I, I, I think <laughs> that what we see a lot of times is, yeah, there'll be some grant money and a large incumbent will come in. They'll end up connecting just the highly populated area, probably usually the county seat and then nothing yeah. else. And because again, there's not that return on investment. They didn't apply for money. And this is a stuff that's really worrisome. Or on the flip side, and I've seen this happen with multiple counties in Virginia that they've got grant money. They can't find a public or private partner. Because yes, no one wants that. to come into these counties at all. Yep. They might come around and kick the tires. And this is why we need to, in those situations, why not encourage a public option? If there's literally the absence of a private market, because no one wants to come in and, and connect that rural of an area. Do you see this at any point? And it's something I've kicked around for years. At some point, getting classified as a legit utility like water and... Well, I think... Yes and no. And I, I think one of the things that poisoned the water around the world utility was it often gets attached to the other political issue in broadband, which is net neutrality. And you want to make the internet a utility. And uh, first of all, I'm a big yeah. proponent of network neutrality. But Same. I've Same. noticed that in the net neutrality debates, the word utility has dropped off because it like it just we weren't getting any traction with calling this a utility. Ohio had a really interesting case recently where they tried to classify Google as a utility. Didn't go anywhere, but they made a really interesting argument in their legal memorandum. So it's going to be up to states, right, to determine if broadband, oftentimes it's regulated by the utility commission, or at least it, you know, that's maybe where the broadband office is housed. But whether or not a state will go so far as to say, we are going to call this a utility and therefore do things like rate regulation, you're going to get into a battle with the Federal Communications Commission. And this actually does have something to do with network neutrality because it's under the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And are you Title I or Title II? Are you an information service where you have no regulation? Or are you a telecommunication service where there's more regulation? So we need, if it's going to happen, we need to see an effort between states and the FCC to make it happen. And I'm not sure. I think it works very well in politics, but I'm not sure if there's a lot of political appetite among states to really make the push for it being a utility. I'm all for it. I would love to see great regulation because we pay too much as it is. But I, I just don't think that there's a political appetite either among states or at the FCC to fight that fight, which is unfortunate. Yeah, because my concern, and it's probably one that you share too, is if we don't solve the the broadband issue, you're besides having a, a generation of people that won't be in touch with truly what's going on, you're going to lose their creativity, their educational aspects. You're also going to start getting 
you know, pushed away from the rural environments where in my mind, you're going to have a little bit of a population migration into the places that have internet. We were starting this out and your husband's a realtor years ago. The first question asked was not how good are the schools? Not what is the crime rate? Hey, does this house got high speed? Is Comcast here? Yeah. Yeah. Is Verizon here? Yeah. Number one question and probably number two question. Yeah. Uh, and if we don't fix this, we're going to see this this slow migration to the to more population centers. And I think we saw the inverse of this during the pandemic, where we saw out migration in urban areas, but people were not asking that question because there was this presumption of connectivity. Yep. So Ben, my husband, certainly saw, and he obviously knows the broadband conversation in and out. Yep. He's he often has to volunteer some of this information and say, let's talk about how the what the internet is. What do you need in terms of your internet connectivity? Are you, for instance? in the tech sector and you're looking to remote commute, that's (laughs) going to really limit the places, for instance, in rural Virginia that you can actually move to. Again, you're probably going to end up in Nelson County because Firefly is almost everywhere now. But but how do we make sure every county is like that? How do we make sure that you can move anywhere in Virginia and still do your job? That, I think, is so crucial. So we like to say that in real estate, it used to be location, now it's location. But yeah, I do agree. If we don't get this right, if we waste the $65 billion, folks are going to go to where the, we've learned how to work from home. We've learned how to work from coffee shops. We've learned how to not be in an office. And so there's going to be, there's a moment right now for rural communities to attract investment, to attract business, to attract education, to attract young people, or to keep young people there. But internet connectivity is a crucial factor in making, I'm not saying it's the decisive factor. I'm also not saying just because there's a wire on the ground, it means it's going to be so much better, but it's a crucial factor in rural economic development. And we need to make sure that that counties and communities really understand that point. How with reading tea leaves, do you think we're going to get it right or fall into the traps of old behavior where we're going to just start giving these places money that they're going to misappropriate misuse, and then nobody's actually going to actually hold them accountable. So I think there is hope in that Congress gave the money to the NTIA and not the FCC. The FCC has proven to be, to have not done its due diligence with a lot of grant money. And we saw this particular with the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund that is going through some kind of colossal hiccups right now when like parking lots got funded and traffic circles got funded because just because of a lack of due diligence. So I think there's a good there's potential for NTA to right these wrongs. Now, the question we need to make sure is, is NTA staffed enough? It's a small office and it's on the executive side, so it's in the presidential side. Is it staffed well enough to be able to write these rules to work with states? And that's the other thing we need to make sure. Every state needs to have a well-staffed broadband office because if states don't have the capacity to access the NTA money, the $65 billion, then other entities can start bypassing the state and just apply on the state's behalf. And that's going to be really problematic. So we need to make sure that states are well-equipped, that these offices are well-equipped and well-staffed to be able to handle what's at a minimum going to be $100 million per state, but it's probably going to go a whole lot more when you're doling out $42 billion. What is that? Uh, it's less than a billion a state, but not that far off. Virginia, for instance, is poised to get a lot of money. We need to make sure that we are positioned to to access it or history will repeat itself and the incumbents will just come in and say, trust us, we'll do it and they'll get the money. Sounds good. As uh, we wrap up, what would you advise those that know there's an issue within their community, want to start trying to make an impact or start making this a higher priority issue? Where would you recommend them go? Boards of Supervisors. 
I think boards of supervisors have a tremendous amount of untapped power in it. So if your county doesn't have a broadband plan, if your town doesn't have a broadband plan, you should be talking at the local level because this is going to be crucial then to access state money and federal money. You need to start with that broadband plan. You need to get your boards of supervisors on board. And it often starts with just you, you need one digital champion who's going to you know try and champion this through. But as you said, you need to get the other elected officials on board and to me, that's Board of Supervisors, at least. And, and in Virginia, obviously, since cities are different, like you'll need to get if you're in a city or municipality, you'll need to get your local officials there. But I think that is going to be absolutely crucial to develop a concrete broadband plan so that when the Commonwealth of Virginia is saying, hey, we've got whatever, a billion dollars in, in broadband funding, the communities and counties will be equipped and ready to apply for that money. Right. So that's what I say. Go local. Go local. No, absolutely. And I would throw in, if you're an elected official, happen to be listening to this, that find some other technical resources within your community that are already other business owners to get involved. I saw that lacking. I was the only one on the entire Rural Broadband Committee for Culpepper that had any technology experience. And I, I appreciated, don't get me wrong, I really appreciated having the other people going, hey, this is a problem. I kid you not, every single other one was a real estate agent. In, yeah. in, in the case that I was in, because it's de it's directly impacted what they did. Day Absolutely. In day. We have to, this is a we've got to build our stakeholder coalitions, right? Everybody, every business yeah. is a stakeholder. So if you're doing credit card transactions, you have a stake in broadband deployment in your community. So let's mobilize all of these assets to make sure that everybody is connected. Absolutely. If anybody wants to reach out to you, connect. I'm going to have all the links to your Great. previous presentations. If you want all of the facts and figures, the links to the book in the show note. But if anybody wants to reach out to you directly, what's the best place? So two places. One, my email, C-A-L-I at Virginia.edu. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Ali underscore Christopher. Awesome. And yes, and this is, you can see pictures of his dogs and everything else. <laughs> Broadband. No, I appreciate the time. This is great catching up. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Let me... Uh...